This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Come on for picture. First positions, everyone. Yo, go. And action! Hello and welcome to episode 326 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking from indie film to studio films, everything in between, how to get them made, how to make them, how to try not to F it up, in our very, very humble opinion. Hello, how you doing? I'm Giles Alderson. I'm delighted to say Three Day Millionaire is out on Netflix right now. We are in the top 10 right now in the UK. Pretty amazing. It's also available in the US and Canada. Link to that is in the show notes. So I thought I'd get that out of the way first because it's super exciting. But today's episode is even more exciting, if it could possibly be, because we have on Peyton Reed, ladies and gentlemen, the director of Bring It On, uh, starring Kirsten Dunst, Down With Love, starring Rennie Zellweger and Ewan McGregor, The Breakup, starring Jennifer Aniston, Yes Man, starring Jim Carrey, and Ant-Man 1, Ant-Man 2, and The Wasp, and the brand new Ant-Man and The Wasp, Quantum Mania, which stars Paul Rudd, Catherine Newton, Michelle Pfeiffer, Michael Douglas, and, in a starring turn, Jonathan Majors. I sat down with Peyton Reed in front of a load of cameras. This is the first time I've done this. It's uh, the junkets me and Dom sometimes talk about, and Dom has done one of these with Conor Burrow before. We think we're just going to do a normal podcast interview, but no, there's lovely huge cameras, and it's all lit, and there's microphones dangling from the roof, and suddenly now you're on camera, and it's a very different feeling. So this is the first time I've done it, and we have turned this into a video, so that'll be on YouTube soon, so you can watch me fluff my way through it. But um, <laughs> what myself... And the actual lovely Peyton Reed talked about was his career. How he managed to end up directing Ant-Man and the Wasp, taking over from Edgar Wright. Uh, what it was like getting it tonally right with Paul Rudd. And then Jonathan Majors coming in and doing an almost Shakespearean performance. And what it's like working with Michelle Pfeiffer and, and Michael Douglas over all these years. What he learnt from making Super 8 movies as a youngster, how he learnt to edit, how he learnt camera angles just by doing it and watching other directors work. We talk about disappointments as well, Uh, his work on Fantastic Four and how that never came to be. And pitching is a huge thing for filmmakers and, and Payne goes into depth about actually how he pitched for this, pitch to Marvel for Ant-Man, and why you should be absolutely passionate for the project you're pitching for, otherwise don't bother doing it. We talk about success, and we talk about making mistakes, 
and the importance of having a relationship with your crew. Peyton Reed, ladies and gentlemen, on the Filmmakers Podcast. We've had some amazing guests in the last couple of weeks. Um, Christopher Landon last week, his film We Have a Ghost is number one on Netflix right now if you've not seen that. Ben Caron uh, with his film Sharper, it's number one on Apple right now. They're the last two weeks. Before that we had Todd Field and then Charlotte Wells and then Samuel D. Hunter. Uh, Two of those three are up for an Oscar this coming Sunday. Let's see how we get on, shall we? (laughs) Super exciting. Um, Coming up next week for you, even more excitement, we have uh, the director of Joyland, Saim Sadiq, and uh, the director of Next Exit, Marley Elfman. Um, Two fantastic guests, so that is coming up for you. All to come on the Filmmakers Podcast. Look, if you do love this, tell your friends. That's how we grow, and it's so important that more people hear about this because then we can get even more great guests and I can spend more time editing these. Uh, And go on iTunes and give us a five-star review and click the plus button as well. And you get it straight onto your podcast uh, of choice when you download it. Shout out uh, this week. Well, to be honest, I've been meaning to do these for a little while, but I've been a bit busy. Uh, I'm wanting to get to some of the episodes. But shout out to Keep Off Productions um, and to Philip Pugh Film underscore maker on twitter radistin radev lee paul greenhow uh, craig cool um, and also shout out to mark coleman whose latest film manfish has just been released it's onto sky store and amazon in the uk right now it's a creature feature um but it's actually a love story and also marcus marku has just launched cinema for a pound Basically, his latest film, The Wife and a House Husband, is getting released at the Prince Charles Cinema from March the 10th. And you can go, and it's premiering there for three weeks. It's got a three-week run, Prince Charles Cinema in central London. Uh, And then it'll also be doing other key cities across the UK in April. But it's basically a pound. One pound. You can go to the cinema for a pound. You can get as many tickets as you want for a pound. Listen, get a group of friends together and go support, because this is a brilliant idea Marcus is doing. It's spreading the word. It's making cinema accessible for you, and he wants to sell them out. Of course he does. So go support. Links to that and to Mark Coleman's film are in the show notes. Go support if you can. Right, let's get to it. This is myself. And the amazing Peyton Reed talking all about Ant-Man, Quantum Mania. It is out now um, in cinemas across the UK and about his career and so much more as well. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Good, man. Giles is from the Filmmakers Podcast and uh, Oscar will be on I think so. Yeah, Chris, are you happy with audio, yeah? Yeah, I'm just going to move that mic very slightly forward. I love the show. That's great. Thank you, mate. Designed it a load for the podcast and I always really liked the idea. It was like, make your film, go do it. Well, that's the best possible advice for young filmmakers, right? Right. That's the only way to do it. Yeah. Yeah, it's the only way to do it. Go on. Yeah, great. So, Peyton Reed, thank you so much for joining us on the Filmmakers Podcast. Thank Honestly, you for having me. It's an honour, it really is. So, look, let's, uh, the first thing for me, which I found fascinating, is the volume. Uh, yes. We've been wanting, as a lot of indie filmmakers go, look, the volume, it sounds amazing, we want to work in it. How, what a great space to play in. But it's ridiculously expensive for indie filmmakers. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> is it ridiculously expensive for uh, big budget filmmakers? For anyone. Yes. How did you find it going from... You know, these fantastic 
films you've made before, there's comedy films, especially Ant-Man as well before that. But then now you're, you're diving into this whole world of the volume and the size and spectacle of Ant-Man with that. W- would you just touch on that for us a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, in getting to do a third Ant-Man movie, Quantumania, I definitely wanted to mix it up and, and, and do something different. You know, the first two movies uh, took place in San Francisco, mm. as does the beginning of this one, but then we very quickly get down to the quantum realm. And we talked about really kind of putting Scott and Hope in a very different context, and we wanted to answer questions from the last movie about what's actually in the quantum realm and what was Janet doing down there. But it gave us a chance to do something that we could really kind of go gonzo with the design and, and make it like a, a a harder sort of science fiction fantasy movie in its uh, in its look, right? Mm-hmm. That was exciting to me. Um, to do that, obviously – you can't go shoot on location in the quantum realm. We had to figure out all the different methodologies of doing it. And we used a lot of traditional stuff, really amazing sets, you know, great production design by Will Tay, our production designer. Uh, we used traditional blue screen and green screen, but we also used the volume. And the volume is an interesting piece of technology, as you mentioned, mm. quite expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and for people who don't know what it is, it's basically a 360-degree uh, LED screen that you can you create material whether it's photographic or digital and you project it on the screens and you work the cameras and you shoot in there and it, it creates a parallax with the camera so actors love it mm-hmm. because they can see kind of you know they don't have to imagine they don't actually have to use their imaginations mm-hmm. um, although that's what they get paid to do um, <laughs> the, uh, but but it's um. You know, it's really for certain things in the movie. We had to create a lot of different environments within the quantum realm. Mm. The volume was right for some of them, but there there are size restrictions to it, right? Sure. If you're doing a scene where people are running and there's a lot of movement, mm-hmm. you can't. It's yeah. more for sort of like more static scenes. You almost need a treadmill at that point, don't you? Like a floor moving exactly. floor to yeah. get away with it. Um, for Mandalorian, it's perfect, right? I think yes. for, for, for that context. And one of the great things is, and one of the first things they showed us was, the the sort of fake naturalism you can get, like, you know, eternal magic hour, right? Mm-hmm. And that stuff, it's great. Yeah, it does. We were pushing the limits of the technology on this because we we wanted to get a lot of movement and elements, ships and things that were moving in the volume. And that requires that um, they produce these very high-res, uh, what they call loads for the volume early on. So it is a technical, just that alone is very, you know, technical and requires a lot of, of lead time. Um, it's really cool technology, and it's going to be fun to see how it develops over the years. And LED in general, I think, not just the volume, but just LED panels and things for the interactive light is mm-hmm. is really exciting. I love that, the, you know, with the volume, you can, like you say, put a light up over here, and it can recreate the sun. It can yeah. bounce reflections off a visor or, yeah. you know, especially it's perfect for sci-fi films. It's perfect <laughs> for something like this. Yeah. Was it always the choice to go, we are going to shoot? in the volume because obviously you didn't for the other films. We talked about it early on cause I'd used it on Mandalorian mm. uh, and it's interesting, but it was, it was really sort of like we found that it was great for certain situations, but it wasn't the right tool for other situations In other situations where we just needed more real estate, mm. you know, building a traditional set and doing digital extensions on that was, was a better choice. So it worked well for this as one of the tools in the tool belt because we wanted all these things like a quantum jungle or these planes or, uh, you know, uh, Chronopolis, Kang's mm-hmm. Citadel. They all had to have different feels to them. Yeah. So it was good to use the different methodology for each of these things. You know, in terms of that compositing side and the CGI side and all that, how much planning? Because obviously it must have been great to go on The Mandalorian and just 
test it. And I say that in the nicest possible way yeah, yeah. for you on the Ant-Man, you know, because they had been making the Mandalorian that way for a while. Yeah, so yeah. you'd come onto an already machine that was That's right, yeah. absolutely working. They knew how to do it. So you could come on and go, oh, great, show me this. This is fantastic. Yeah. Talk us through then what your process was to doing that with Quantum Mania and how you managed to do all your prep and actually, because now it's you doing it. You've got to yeah. think about all this. And obviously, you've got your amazing team, but yeah. well, how did it change your thought process in terms of shot lists and in terms of shot sizes and what you want to do with the camera? I don't know that it changed my process because these movies, you know, all the Ant Man movies, every movie really, but, you know, from like a $10 million movie to a $200 million movie, if you're a smart director, you're going to do your prep work. I mean, and in a lot of ways, that's where the movie is made. And that's where, you know, the aesthetic of the movie is really, you start to really discover that. Whether it's like, you know, storyboarding or doing elaborate pre-vis, uh, for which you also have to do tech-vis, um, the process just gets longer, right? But on something like this, you, you, you always want to pre-plan that because <clears throat> you're creating environments out of whole cloth, and you don't want to be restricted in what you're going to do. And you want to have as much flexibility on the day too. So um, I've, you know, again, I started out doing TV movies years ago that were 20 days prep, 20 days shoot, 20 days post, and you're done. That's it. <clears throat> so you have to know what you, you have to have stuff pre-planned because mm-hmm. um, you can't waste any time. And that I, I have just carried that with me throughout my entire career. But, you know, my main thing as director is to whatever those technical considerations are is to try and shield the actors from it as much as possible so they can feel relaxed and, and spontaneous. And, and if you start losing the life in the performance, that's when you're dead. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that then. Let's talk about the actors working with them on something like this. Now, a lot of these actors you've worked with before. Yeah. But you've got a couple of new ones here, you know, and you're working in the volume a lot of the time, not all the time, but a lot of the time. How do you... I mean, there's some absolutely fantastic performances in this film. Jonathan Majors, for one, is just sensational. Yeah. How did you find that? How do you coax that? It's almost Shakespearean in a way, with the yeah. sort of that language and the power and the feel. It's all held in. Do you yeah. Talk to us about that and your process as a director working with actors as well, especially on this. Well, as you said, you know, w- with Paul, Evangeline, uh, and Michael, we've done all three together. We yeah. obviously brought Michelle Pfeiffer in on the last one. This is her second one with us. But yeah, Jonathan Majors is new, and Catherine Newton's new. And, um, you know, my process is the same, is really sort of like to work the script and work with the actors and get at whether it's comedy or drama or a movie like this that embraces, you know, all those tones um, to get at the truth of the situation. With, with Jonathan, uh, in casting him as Kang, I uh, I had seen everything Jonathan had done and just found him such an exciting actor. Mm. He certainly has the physical presence for Kang, the Conqueror, the thing I was looking for. But he's also just, you know, Kang is this hyper-intelligent being who's just a man. Jonathan and I had so many conversations before, you know, as even before we started prepping about what this movie's version of Kang was going to be and the idea that he is a bit of a broken man and what's it like to be in the presence of someone who doesn't experience time in a linear fashion. Mm. We got most excited about bringing that very different energy into the more lighthearted Ant-Man universe and pitting Jonathan's Kang energy up against Paul Rudd's Scott Lang energy. Mm. That seemed exciting. And here's a guy who is, has no interest in joking around with Ant-Man and is not going to tolerate that. And, um, and those two actors working together, doing their thing was exciting to me. How do you balance the tone then? Because like you say, you, you've got Paul Rudd's, you know what he's bringing. You know this wry, quirky often serious, but at the same time, you yeah. get his humor. He's being funny. He was always trying to put a quip in. And then you've got 
Jonathan Majors as Kang, and it's not. Like you say, sir, were you ever worried that the balance there would just go, you two different movies? I mean, that's always the worry as a director, isn't it? That Yeah, I, I wasn't worried about it because, you know, Jonathan is doing, he's committing to this Kang character. And Paul, you know, Paul's persona is very lighthearted, but the, the thing that's easy to forget about Paul because he makes it look so easy is mm. Paul's an incredible dramatic actor and, and has stage experience. He's also a writer. And Paul knows sort of how each piece of the puzzle fits into the larger story. So he knows just instinctually when to be funny, uh, when Paul read it, when Scott Lang is committed and in a serious situation, Paul, Paul just knows he, he, his, his radar for that is so precise. Um, but he makes it look so easy. Mm-hmm. So tonally, not only did we, that, that was, that wasn't really a challenge for us. It was really what we chased. We wanted that. We wanted that juxtaposition of, of tones. That was the thing that I think, you know, people might go into an Ant-Man movie expecting one thing, but we wanted to beat Scott Lang up in this movie. Yeah. And you've definitely done that. I, it worked brilliantly for me. I love that juxtaposition. Oh, I thank thought you. that was fantastic. And it was just, just, you were like, oh, this isn't a shouty, screamy, angry villain. This yeah. is someone who's, oh, this is very serious. It makes him very frightening. Yes. This economy of movement and and sort of economy of, of language, mm. which is the opposite of, of Scott Lang. How do you know then when to do certain shot sizes? Because, like I say, we prep, as you talked about there, it's so important for prep as a director. But how do you know? It's, I know it's sort of instinctual sometimes. Yeah. But did it change when you get into the volume? You said, okay, well, we're going to do a close-up here on Jonathan, so I'll probably go, you know, it'd be a mid-close. Do you then get, okay, because there's a lot of crane work here, or there's a lot of steady cam that I felt like yeah. there's a lot of movement within yeah. your camera work, which is beautiful and interesting. You know, you're not just holding on a shot. There's stuff happening. There's background stuff. You're always aware of it. Yeah. What, how do you work in the moment then on set? It would be really lovely for our listeners to hear how you go through those moments on set as a director, your process within an individual shot. When you've set it up, then you go, oh, I might try this. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and to me, we talked about pre-production. So I will always go in with a plan, a really solid plan, mm. you know, a plan of like coverage and angles. And, you know, by that time I've, uh, I listen on this movie, I got to work with Bill Pope, one of the great cinematographers yes. whose work I've loved for many years. Um, we go through the script very specifically and we talk about, uh, the kinetics of the movie, but we also talk about the emotion of the movie and a specific scene mm. where you want to be ideally in that scene. Um, and that's whether you're shooting a uh, practical set, blue screen, or volume. It's all the same. So it's really about, you know, covering the scene. When you get the actors there and you start blocking the scene and putting it on its feet and experiencing it in three dimensions and f- starting to really feel the rhythm of those performances, you know, Bill and I will watch those scenes and then we'll, we'll talk after rehearsal and say, did you notice this great? Did you see what Jonathan was doing here? Paul has this moment here that we got to catch and figuring out where we want to do it. So you revise the plan based on this thing that you just saw and those moments, those emotional moments or comedic moments that you want to capture. And that's really the process because it's got to remain fluid. Otherwise, if you're too rigid, well, I got to be here because the light's going to do this. It's like, Mm -hmm. then you're in trouble because you're going to end up with something stiff and lifeless. You have to allow for uh, those found moments that happen if you're fortunate, they happen. If you have great actors like we have in these movies, you have to be able to catch that. You'd be you'd be an idiot not to. Yeah, talking about great actors, there. You, you know, Michael Douglas is. You know, Michelle Pfeiffer's. We're in this movie. What did you learn from them as well? Because you're bringing them into a, you know, a Marvel movie. 
You know, yeah. it's not something they normally do or have done. How did you as a director go, okay, I'm working with these titans, these superstars, you know, yeah. Wall Street and, you know, Michael Douglas. On the first movie, I remember when we started shooting in 2014 mm-hmm. with Michael. Um, it's fascinating to watch Michael, who is obviously an Oscar-winning actor. He's also an Oscar-winning producer. Mm-hmm. It was amazing watching him sort of take in everything that was going on. He'd never really done a movie with this many visual effects. And just learning that process. <clears throat> but also... Michael is just, he, he puts you at ease because he's a very easygoing character despite whatever his roles are, you know, in the movies. Um, he gets it and he's, he's just exceptional. He, um, and then when he turns on in front of the camera and becomes Michael Douglas, it is, it's something to watch, man, because he just like, oh, okay, that's why he's a movie star. He mm-hmm. just has that thing mm-hmm. that's hard to define. And Michelle's the same way. Like, Michelle is, you know, you know, when you, when you meet with Michelle, Michelle's very, quiet person, right? I don't think she, you know, she doesn't like being in crowds so much. She's very, there's a delicacy about her. She's very delicate. And we'll tell this, she'll tell you the story. She's, you know, every role she's ever gotten from Grease 2 on, <laughs> Love Grease she's, two. she's tried so to back good. out of because she, yeah. she gets nervous. It's part mm. of her process. Right. Um, but she commits and she's great. And she jumped into the idea of playing an action hero in this movie. Mm. Um, but watching her, particularly in the quiet moments and, and that relationship with Kang, um, it's just beautiful to watch her work. And they're, they're both, uh, you know, they are Hollywood royalty. You look at their individual bodies of work, it's incredible. And do you treat them, I suppose you do, the same as any other actor, you know, Catherine coming on for the first time. Is it a similar process or are you diving deeper into someone who's a bit newer? I think every, uh, whether they're new or veteran, uh, part of, a big part of my job is, particularly in a movie that's a, a, an ensemble movie like this one, you have to identify and learn each specific actor's process because they are all very different. And you have to, you have to help them figure out how to be relaxed and, and give their best performance. Catherine Newton, who is already a veteran, but she's new mm. to our movies. Mm. Uh, again, this is her first entree into a big, uh, visual effects laden Marvel movie. Part of it was putting her at ease and also like saying, listen, you're, you're the new kid on the block, but, just relax into it and, and have fun. And here's what we do. And just guiding her through that process. So it's, it is sort of, you know, looking at everybody's different methodologies and how to, you know, there, there's so many different ways to approach a role and to sort of get to where you want to get. And they're all different. Mm. You, you mentioned earlier, you started off in TV, which you did. And actually you did some behind the scenes for Back to the Future as well, right? You, I did for Back to the Future 2 and 3. Yeah, That's amazing for Zemeckis, yeah. which must have been absolutely fascinating. Yeah, And moving into TV and then into your first film, Bring It On. How did you... I mean, look, did you always want to be a director? Was that something that you went, look, this is what I want to do because, you know, you were writing as well around that time? Yeah. And how did you manage to get that made? Because, you know, it's a big movie. It did ridiculously well. Yeah. I I did always want to be. I mean, I loved movies as a kid. And I got, uh, for Christmas one year, I got a Super 8 camera. Nice. I think when I was... 12 and and uh was that because your parents knew you were into oh film? yeah no i was like I, I can is there any way to get a super 8 camera and <laughs> yeah. i think my dad found one used you know and 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 bought it and you know it was this little bell and howl i had a couple of bell and howl and a canon and they were super eight you do those 50 foot cartridges yeah but i learned so much just about camera angle shooting film and then you had a little editor and, and editing and all that stuff that was uh, invaluable. Mm-hmm. And like your shirt says, make your film. That's mm-hmm. the way to learn is to, you know, just go out and make mistakes and learn how, how to do it and how not to do it. And in those days, again, now we all have amazing uh, movie studios and on yeah. our, our iPhones. 
Um, but then it was like you had to shoot the film and send it off to get developed and it came back a week or two later mm -hmm. and it either came out nicely or didn't, didn't. and then you cut yeah. it like and that's that's part of the thing but yes. yeah i yeah. knew from an early age i i wanted to do it i didn't necessarily know how to go about doing it and and editing was really kind of my my way in mm. to bring it back to that moment where you were first directing a feature did it did it work yeah. from the tv side did it move from were you always pushing to make a feature at that point? Because at that time, TV wasn't as big as it is now. Yeah, no, TV was a different thing mm. then. And um, I remember doing, again, I came at it almost through these, this documentary making of thing. Yeah. I did Back to Future 2 and 3 with Zemeckis and Forrest Gump as well. Yes. Um, I did a bunch of those. For me, that was great because I was, I was young and I was watching other directors and actors, veteran directors and actors work. Mm. And it was great to see what worked and what didn't work. You know, Zemeckis, you go and watch Zemeckis and Michael J. Fox or Tom Hanks work, and that's like, okay, this is fantastic. Mm. And you see that collaboration. There are other directors that I did making ofs for. I'm not going to mention any names, but you see like, oh, God, I would if I ever get in that position, I'm not doing that. And this guy's mm. screaming, mm. and you find out, oh, this guy's screaming because he didn't do his homework. He's not yeah. prepped. And yeah. like, <laughs> you, you, they're really valuable lessons <laughs> that, that you see, you know, writ large in front of you. Um so I started in, in doing that and through that same company doing some television stuff, um, which was great. And that, that sort of was a, a lucky break. As it was actually a Disney TV movie. was my first TV um, yeah. thing. Um, and it was fun because it taught you the value of prepping and, and just, you know, basic stuff. Show up on time. Mm -hmm. Do the work. Uh, know what you're doing. Have spent time with the script and know what each scene is about. It's, it was very valuable. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply You've mentioned there about seeing directors or other people who weren't necessarily uh, doing what they needed to do and hadn't done the homework. How did you deal with certain rejections yourself uh, or issues? Maybe we talk about uh, The Fifth Beetle, for instance, or The Fantastic Four. When yeah, you've done yeah. all that prep and you're ready to make this film or you feel like you are, and then it gets taken away. Yeah. How did you overcome those disappointments? I think I learned early on, and it's a valuable lesson for anybody who's young and wants to get into business whether it's acting or directing, and it's a weird thing to say, but rejection is the norm. Rejection is the absolute norm. Like if you're an actor, how many auditions do actors go on? Nope, you don't get the part, someone else did. Rejection is the norm. Mm. You know, the, to, to land a part or to get that job, no matter how passionate you, you are, it has got to be a combination of, you know, uh, persistence, hopefully talent, and then also just, you know, that X factor of being in the right place at the right time. But rejection is the norm, and you've got to 
you've got to know that and not let that defeat you, right? That's, that's, that's a big, big lesson. Mm. Um, you know, with things like, uh, say Fantastic Four 20 years ago, I developed it for a year and it just felt like, oh, the studio clearly doesn't want to make the same movie I want to make and doesn't understand it. Mm. Uh, and when the head of the studio tells you like, listen, sometimes art's leading the charge and sometimes commerce is. Uh, and in this case, commerce is. Well, that's a pretty strong signal that maybe you're not going <laughs> to... Yeah, they're things. They're just... You have to read the tea leaves, right? Yes, yeah. And interestingly, maybe the same the other way around when you did come on to Ant-Man, you yeah. know, with Edgar doing his sort of probably the same thing that just wasn't on the right path. Yeah. What was your pitching process like? Because you'd come from this brilliant comedy background, you know, yeah. Yes Man and um, yeah. The Breakup. yeah. And now you're pitching for Ant-Man, which is a Marvel movie. Talk yeah. us through that pitching process and what worked for you, because it obviously worked. Well, I mean, I had known, I, when I was doing Fantastic Four, at that time, Kevin was a junior executive under Avi Arad at Marvel. Ah. So I, I'd known Kevin a little bit. Um, I went in and pitched on Guardians. I did a big pitch on Guardians, and, wow. and, and James got the movie, but like that put me kind of back on Marvel's radar. Mm. So... I leapt at the chance. I'd always, you know, I knew these comics growing up. I, I read the comics. I knew the world, and, and Kevin knew I knew that world. And also the tone of Ant-Man, it just, it made sense for me. So mm. um, I leapt at the chance. I read the existing drafts, and because, you know, I really at that point had no stake in it, I read the drafts and was very uh, forthright about my opinions about the, what I felt worked and didn't work in the draft. And, um, and I got the job, and it was off to the races. I used to ask myself a lot of questions. Scott, you're at ex-con. How are you an Avenger? That doesn't make sense. But everywhere I go, people tell me the same thing. Thank you, Spider-Man. People still need help, Dad. That's why we made this. It's like a satellite for deep space, but quanta. Wait, wait a minute. You're sending a signal down to the quantum realm. Turn it off. Now!
on that, then what visual references did you bring in to those uh, pitch meetings or talking about what what was it? Because it's so hard. Because at the time there wasn't, you know, there's a yeah. much better setup now. I think for filmmakers to find images and to find, yeah. How did did you go about it then to go in the room with this is the movie I want to make? I, I, it'd be fascinating for Alison to know how you actually, yeah, pitched literally. What did you show? I think on any movie or any TV show or music video or anything that you know one might want to direct. Pitching is such a it's such a strange thing because whoever's on the other end of the pitch, the receiving end, right? At some point, they have to make a leap of faith, right? They have to decide, like, oh, this person has ideas that that are exciting and interesting. Um, it remains to be seen if they can pull them off and all these things. But it's you know, there's a part of you when you're pitching something, you you have a passion for it and you have your take on it. Your take is going to be different than anybody else's take on the material, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I think that's what's uh, exciting. And on the receiving end. Every executive wants a brand new, fresh idea. Every executive is also afraid of a brand new, fresh idea. Mm. So you're working with this dichotomy on the other end, and you have to convince the person, uh, you know, that you want to do it. And I think you do have to have a passion for that thing you're pitching. There's no point. Don't waste anybody's time if you're not into the thing. Um, I was very passionate about Ant-Man. I, I knew him from the comics, and also to me it's like, I would have rather done Ant-Man than Spider-Man or Hulk or anything like that. I loved I loved the instant absurdity that a normal person's response is like, Ant-Man, he shrinks and talks to ants. That's absurd. It's right. like, yes, yeah. and here's how we're going to subvert your expectations. That was fun to me. I, I, liked, uh, I liked those sort of that underdog quality of Ant-Man. I just – that's what – I was mm. passionate about. Mm. And did you come in with images? Did you come in with, you know, this is how I'll shoot this, this is what I want to do? Yeah, you talk about all of that stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, and that's true on every movie. I mean, on Bring It On, it's, mm. you know, you're pitching a competitive cheerleader comedy and you, you pitch the tone and all this sort of stuff yeah. and you bring in imagery. But at the end of the day, it's got to be about the story and the characters. What, you know, what drew me to something like Bring It On? Because... I didn't grow up being obsessed with cheerleaders. What I responded to in that script was, oh, here they're treating it, they're making a case for it as an actual competitive sport, but it's also exploring this subculture that these characters are incredibly passionate about. Mm -hmm. It's also telling the story of, you know, a privileged white squad versus, you know, Mm -hmm. a black squad and, uh, you know, these themes of cultural appropriation. That's cool. I haven't seen that in a movie before. You kind of approach it as an audience member. For me on that one, it was just like, I've never seen this in a movie before. That would be cool. That I get excited about that. I wasn't expecting to be excited about it, but reading that script, I was really excited about it. What was it that you think got you the job, do you think, on Bring It On? I think, you know, because I know several people were meeting on it, it was my passion for it, but it was also the tone. It was also, you can't, you can't do a two-hour movie making fun of cheerleaders. And that's not what the script did. Mm. It really did, like, you know, it invested in it while, uh, you know, acknowledging right up front with a musical number, you know, the the preconceived notions of cheerleaders. And they they sing and dance a, a musical number about that. I thought that was really an inspired way to start that movie. Uh, and then it sort of takes you through these characters and you you sort of, you know, you you see this situation happening that you know is not right uh, and you're along the ride with Kirsten's character, the protagonist, mm. as she sort of discovers everything that they've been, you know, building their cheerleader championship. Uh, you know, they're, they've, they're five-time national champions, but it's all been built on thievery. Yeah. Um, it just seemed exciting to me. It's fascinating because you went – I mean, the success of that 
was pretty huge. Yeah, it was. It was, and again, one of those great things where you, you're going, you're going out with a ten million dollar competitive cheerleading comedy, mm, right? Um, and you have no idea uh, how it's how if it's going to connect or not. In that case, it really connected and it catches you off guard. But that is that that's that wonderful, I think, X factor about movies you just don't know. Mm. You, you make the movie you want to make and you're passionate about the movie and whether it finds an audience now. And also it's like, does it find an audience now? Does it never find an audience? Does it find an audience later? There, there are so many templates for every kind of movie. And I, I find that exciting too. Mm. The success of that though, did it, it must have changed things in a yeah. way. Talk us through that and how you dealt with it because we all want to be, all the filmmakers out there, they want to have that success of their first film. And it's sometimes really difficult. Yeah. And actually, I, I always say, don't worry about it. Keep going as a filmmaker. If yeah. it's success, great. If it's not, don't worry, go make more. You've yeah. made one. You've learned. Get better. How, yeah. how did the success work for you moving forward, you know, especially down with Love Next and the yeah, Yes yeah. Man? And well, it was great, obviously, to have the first movie hit in that way. And I remember uh, Mark Abraham, the producer on that movie, the night it opened and getting the numbers that were way higher than we thought him saying like he's like enjoy tonight it's never going to happen again <laughs> really? yeah he, he, he's a southern guy and that was his, that was his wisdom at the time um and then down with love you know uh, the second movie i which i loved uh came out and was counter-programmed and opened the same weekend as matrix reloaded maybe the most anticipated sequel in in yeah of the History, 21st right? century yeah and it killed us and we made no money um over time, I think that movie has has, has been well regarded. Mm. But it was for me personally, it was great to come out of the gate with a, a hit, and then the next one was not a hit. And for me, it set the template of like, well, this is you have to learn to live with both. Mm. You have to. You and McGregor and I talked about when we were doing Down with Love, his thing about um, which I found very valuable, which is before the movie comes out, you're finished with the movie before it comes out. You know how you feel about your own movie. You have a relationship with your own movie mm. um, and nothing can change that. That was very valuable to me. Mm. Uh, and Ewan sort of lives by that. I think that's very powerful. Yeah. Because it's true. You've got to be proud of what you've done. Absolutely. Even you know there's problems. You know there's issues you can see as a filmmaker. Yeah. But and it's, it's, no one else really can. It's Well, every movie you do, by the time you finish making it, you would do things differently, right? You just, you just know. Yeah. And that's, if, you don't, if you stop feeling that way, then you're not learning anymore. Mm. Down With Love, like you said, wasn't the big success or what people thought. But then Yes Men happened. It's yeah. Jim Carrey. Yeah. That must have been interesting. And maybe talk about that process of going from making, in a way, a small indie, even though 10 million is quite a lot of money for a yeah, first yeah. movie to bring yeah. it on, yeah, yeah. to then working with Hugh McGregor and Jim Carrey, you know, that big leap, Randy Zellweger. Talk about that f for us and how you dealt with it. Yeah. I mean, to me, it was just sort of, um, you know, working with comedic actors, dramatic actors that I liked, the process is always the same. Bring It On was a much younger cast in general, right? Mm. So that was yeah. more like summer camp in a way. Yeah. But then you're, it, it's really the same process. You meet with the actors, you cast the actors, you meet with them, you talk, you kind of try and suss out what they're, you know, the way they approach acting mm. uh, and put them together. And, and it, as long you, you want to be on the same page with your actors uh, about what that movie is. That's a very basic, basic thing. Um, but it's the same process, really. You know, there are different egos at play in different situations. You're hitting different actors at different points in their careers. And th those things, you know, there's variety to those things. But the basic, you know, actor-director dynamic is the same for all of those. Mm. What did you learn from those movies that you brought forward into Ant-Man? Everything. Um, really everything. I mean, every movie... 
no, no matter how many moves you make, every movie is its own different process, and you are going back and starting at square one mm-hmm. because every story is different. You've got a different set of actors. The circumstances are different. The world is different. The context in which you're making a movie is different. It's 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 a different thing. And you talk to so many directors who talk about you know, on every movie, even the most veteran directors imaginable, the first time up, they're still Spielberg will talk about like. He still gets that sort of nervous thing mm. when he's starting a movie, right? That 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 never changes, and you're just starting fresh every time, which mm. again is is exciting to me. Yeah, jumping into actual onset of Quantum Mania a little bit more. Then you're working with some amazing talent and the team around you. You know, like I said, your DOP absolutely knows their stuff. When you're thinking about lens sizes or your camera of choice before the shoot yeah but then when you come to set and you go oh, okay I, I, we're going to flip it up we're going to do this is that freeing is that sometimes and i suppose time wise on set as well is it okay to just be like yeah okay i've messed up here I, that was wrong i want to do it this way yeah no not only is it okay it's you have to you know, whatever, you're shooting a shot. Let's shoot this on a 40 millimeter and you get it and you look at it and mm. something, you have an instinctual reaction to it. I, I, I feel too distanced from this actor with this lens. Put on a 50 and see if it changes. And you mm. put on the 50, it's like, ah, okay, yeah, that did. You have to be able to, to make those changes. That's part of the process. Yeah. And again, working with Bill Pope, he understands. Sometimes I will do that. Sometimes he will do that. It's mm. like, I know we talked about doing this, but look at it on this lens. Like, and sometimes, like, mm, I, I liked it on the first lens better. Sometimes, like, yeah, no, that's much better. You have to allow for that in-the-moment discovery. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a huge part of making a movie. Same with the production design, then, and, and makeup and costume. You know, yeah. all those little touches that are in there, all those little beats, you've had a hand in, in yeah. some way. Obviously, you let your team play, do yeah. their thing. Talk us through your a relationship with that side of it, on the crew side. Uh, my relationship... With the crew, is it's it's vital. They are the people who uh, are making, helping you realize the vision for this movie. Um, for me, I think one of the most valuable things that I went through when I was younger is when I first moved to L.A. Uh, and was just trying to pay the rent. Mm. I worked on TV commercials. I worked on uh, low-budget movies. So, you know, on some of these, and these were super low-budget movies, uh, movies like Crack House or Easy Wheels, like a you know, biker movie. Like these are like exploitation movies. Good titles. Yeah. I worked, uh, you know, I worked as a location manager. Yeah, I worked as a transportation coordinator. Yeah, that's right. I worked driving, as a prop master. I did trucks, all of these yeah. things. So for me, it was valuable because you know very specifically what those departments do and what they bring to the overall picture, mm. and you also see how those department heads can be treated positively or mistreated negatively. Um, so I think as a director, if you don't value everybody's contribution to what you're doing, I think that's a problem. I mean, that's just my philosophy, but, um, you know, everything's got to be working. You know, you, you've set up a shot and everything's great and working, working, but one element is like, that's, it doesn't mm-hmm. work. It can, one wrong element can torpedo a scene or a shot. It yeah. just can. Yeah, totally. Um, what about the edit then? How do you find, do you find that you shape the movie like a third time, obviously in the writing process on set. Is it, for you, a great time? Some people love the editing process more than on set. I, yeah. I love being on set. Yeah. But do you, what's the process like, especially on something like this? Because even though you're working in a volume, you can see it a lot of the time. But yeah. you were saying some stuff's on blue screen, so you're now in the edit and you're seeing it on blue. And Yeah. 
Talk us through your edit process, how you like to work with your editor. Well, again, I, I started out editing early on. So um, when I shoot, I definitely have the edit in mind. Mm. In these movies, we you know for a lot of these sequences, Quantumania in some ways is almost like an animated movie. So you've we've already done previs on this stuff, and I've worked very closely with the previous team and edit these sequences so we have a version of the sequence before we even start. Hmm. It's always going to change, and things are going to contract, things are going to expand, but um, to, to start from that place is valuable. So I love both. I love the shooting. I love working with actors, but I love editing too because, you, as you said, you, you do make the movie again mm. in the edit, yeah. uh, and you can create magical moments. You can find moments uh, out of what you shot and put them together and juxtapose, juxtapose things and, and find new moments, yeah. which I always find fascinating. Yeah, yeah, those little moments just before, you say action, could be a little beat, the eyes are they're just thinking something perfect, yeah. which might slot in. Certainly on indie films, we do all the time. You know, we need yeah. that little look. Doesn't change. It's Does the same it not? Thing. Same. Same thing. And also, mm. with comedy, the timing and the way a joke, whether it's a, a physical joke or a verbal joke, the way that is edited can take something from not funny to funny or take something from funny to incredibly funny the way it's built. Like that that art form. And we had two extremely talented editors on this, Adam Gerstel and Laura Jennings. And they're terrific because they both have visual effects editing backgrounds, but they also have drama and comedy and they've done, you know, action, but they've also just done very simple human drama and comedy. So uh, working together. And we we worked as a thing where it wasn't, I would go edit with one in one room and the other. We all watched dailies together. Everybody did everything. We all edited the three of us in the same room together. Um, and that process on this movie was terrific. Yeah. You mentioned there about finding those little edits you can tweak to make it funnier and funnier. What happens when it, you, you tweak it and now it's not funny anymore? <laughs> How do you, or it's not well, funny that's the or beautiful it doesn't thing work about, you know, working on an average, you can change it back to the version that was funnier. <laughs> sure. Um, or you can determine if like, hmm, God, there seems to be, no funny version of this joke and maybe you cut the joke out of the movie i mean it's like mm. that there there is that process right yeah. it's um yeah. but you get to refine it and then you get to sort of put it up in front of a test audience and sort of see because mm. for a comedy those test screenings are invaluable to see where the audience is getting behind or confused about something or where they get ahead of it mm. uh at, and whether they laugh or not at a joke. Yeah. Well, on that, then, studio notes, you know, it's Kevin Feige, it's Marvel, so and you're, you're close-knit team now. You've, you've proved yourself, you know, with the two Ant-Mans before this. Is it still frightening? Is it still tough when, you you know, the notes come back? How, how is that, and how do you deal with that? Because, you, like you yeah. said, you, sometimes you want to stick to your vision, but also yeah. they've got their vision. Well, hopefully, as you're developing the story and working on the script – you want everybody in sync about that vision from the jump, right? Mm -hmm. You you got to know that studio producers, director, actors, you got to know you're making the same movie. Um, and really, when you're working in a studio, and I suppose if you're doing an independent film and you have investors who may want to weigh in, mm -hmm. um, you have to deal with notes. And the, the approach to notes is, I, I come at it from like having a, an open mind. Let's hear the note because if you've got an idea that's great, absolutely, I'll take it. If you've got an idea that I disagree with, we'll discuss it. Um, but it does force you to sort of look at the movie and say like, huh, I hate that note. But let's see if that note is right. Let's see if there's, there's, there's a note behind the note even. Yes. Um, and again, I think with how we, we've been working at Marvel and it, to me, I know if Kevin Feige has a note, I know Kevin well enough to know where that note is coming from. 
So I have a point of view, right? And I do respect his opinion. You know, there's times when you get notes from someone random who's maybe not invested in your project yeah. and they're coming out from a whole different thing. Like maybe they give a note about the movie that they would make as opposed to the movie you made. Mm. You have to be able to sort of delineate those things. But that's, that's just part of the process. Yeah, absolutely is. It's fascinating, that moment. Yeah. You, when someone just gives you a note and you're just like, what? what? And, but you've got to take them all... You've got to put them into some sort of boxes. And obviously yeah. you can ignore some, but if everyone keeps saying the same thing, you've really got to look well, at it. Well, that's the thing. is like if it's a pervasive thing that like is mm. you feel like, oh, I hate that note, but I'm watching this thing, and yeah, that does slow this down or that does not work. You know, that is confusing. Mm. You know, you want to be open to – because the audience is going to tell you that down the line, right? Yeah. So you want to listen to that stuff. Yeah. You don't have to do it, but you, you should entertain it. Yeah, you really should. Um, and what's next? I mean, are you allowed to even talk about this next? Obviously, it's the the new phase, phase five of this cinematic universe. Yeah. Do you know, is there anything you can talk about with Ant-Man next? What's what's the situation? No, not no, really. I mean, there's stuff, you know, Jeff Loveness, who, who wrote Quantumania, is off currently, literally as we speak, writing uh, Avengers Kang Dynasty. So uh, he has secrets, but, you know, that stuff is ever evolving, too. So even early on in the process, if I did have a spoiler to Mm. tell you, it would probably change. Peyton Reed, this has been amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure. Real pleasure. Excellent. Excellent. Cool. Cool. That was great. Nice. So there we have it. That was myself and Peyton Reed. Talking all about Ant-Man, Quantumania, it is out now um, in cinemas across the UK. So do so do go watch it. If you like Marvel movies, you're going to love this one. Um, especially because Jonathan Majors is an absolute powerhouse in the movie. So go out there, make your films, make it happen. I'm not saying you can go make a Marvel movie tomorrow, but hey, if you start off small, you can reach the top, just as Peyton Reed has done. And if you're lucky enough to rise up and do well, it is your duty to send the elevator back down. We will probably see you on Friday when we will either have Saeem Sadik, director and writer of Joyland, or Mally Elfman, uh, director and writer of Next Exit. Or quite possibly uh, Nathaniel Martella White for his film The Strays, which is now on Netflix. So until then, do something this week. Do something huge to get your film going and get it made. So important you do that. Uh, Until then, though, all the best to you. (laughs) Bye.